CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Josh Marshall podcast. You know, we are, we're recording this episode on Wednesday and we've, I don't know when you're listening to this, maybe at the, you know, towards the end of this week, if you're listening to it on Thursday or Friday, maybe the indictment came down on Thursday or maybe it came down on Friday. We're kind of a bit in the dark now. Obviously, uh, everybody was thinking over the weekend, I guess the end of last week, over the weekend, that it was going to be Tuesday because Donald Trump had made such a such a sort of a declarative statement that like, you know, I, I mean, and as a separate matter, he's got this whole thing of like, I will be arrested. I will be a SWAT team will come in and throw me to the ground and I'll be arrested and hauled off to New York, all this stuff that obviously is never going to happen. They're not even going to do, well, we don't know, but I think it's highly unlikely they're going to do a perp walk. Um, there's no you know, there's a lot of question of whether a perp walk should ever be done. You know, you're taking someone who's not been convicted of anything and it's the police and or the prosecutor's way of parading them before the press. Now, you know, in the nature of things, most people who are indicted for things uh, are not terribly sympathetic characters. And yet, uh, you know, again, it's not it's not it's not like some part of due process is not being served. Right. I mean, it doesn't have to happen. And given the stuff with the Secret Service and all the different things, I think that's highly unlikely. What What's going to happen is, is what happens with um, most people, certainly most prominent people uh, who are charged with white collar crimes. You go in, there's there's a, a formal process that is not uh, you know, on camera that you surrender yourself, they they fingerprint you, they probably take a mugshot, they do various stuff and you're out on bail and it's and it's done. Uh, but we thought it was going, you know, why would he say it if he had not gotten some advanced word uh, from his lawyers? And again, that's how these things work, generally speaking. Uh, when there's going to be an indictment, the prosecutor will reach out to the soon-to-be defendant's lawyers and say, hey, Let's arrange for your client to come in and, you know, let's do this in a in a in a calm manner. So we thought it would be Wednesday. Then then we got uh, word, I guess, over the weekend into Monday that like it's it the only day it won't be is Tuesday. And and I, I think we think that maybe the grand jury does not meet on Tuesdays. Um, so maybe it's it's Monday or maybe it was going to be Wednesday. Well, we've now found out that even though the grand jury the grand jury does meet on Wednesdays, I guess it's they've decided to not meet today. I don't know if that's because you know the pressure's getting to them or whatever, or they just needed a day off. So anyway, we don't know when this is going to happen. Maybe it's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, I think we think that um, that uh, th- 
that it, you know, the other day that it meets is Thursday. So maybe tomorrow. I, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is not uh, globally a false alarm. That would, that would be very surprising because we're going on a lot of other things besides Trump's say so here. All the, all the signs are, are, are lining up in that, uh, in that direction. So maybe maybe it will happen by the time you have uh, listened to this. Maybe not, but obviously there's been it, it's it's a big deal. Even if this charge is, even if there's some level of irony to the fact that this is the the criminal complaint, the indictment that goes first, since compared to trying to overthrow the government or uh, election tampering in Georgia or trying to slink off with a bunch of classified government property, uh, it it does, you know, it's 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 a relatively um, you know pedestrian offense. Uh, it can. I, I my understanding is is they're going to charge it as a felony. Uh, there's whole whole complex stuff under new new york law where um the primary offense can be a misdemeanor but if it is part of a kind of a larger thing or if you also file documents on the all this kind of stuff it can be a felony in any case it's still a big deal and uh the u.s media's take machine is running on overdrive you know all the different things that it can mean um, and as I've said, I don't think it means that much compared to what we expect will be other indictments on these other charges. Uh, what I'm also pretty sure it doesn't mean is, oh, he'll automatically be elected president now because it, no, it doesn't mean that, 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 that's just stupid. I mean, can you imagine if, um, if if you had Barack Obama in this set of facts, and he's about to be indicted for uh, tax, uh, you know, tax and uh, FEC uh, crimes tied to paying hush money to a porn star that he had sex with in a kind of you know borderline non consensual uh, rendezvous like ten years ago, or I don't know exactly, it's two thousand six or something like that, years and years and years ago. Would anybody say like, oh, Obama? He's a shoo-in for re-election. This is going to help him. Of course, it's not going to help him. Now, will it hurt him that much? I, I'm not I'm not so sure it'll hurt him that much. I mean, we, know, we know he did this, right? I mean, we, we know he had this uh, run-in with Stormy. We know he uh, did this hush money. And one of the things that keeps coming back to me is it is really hard to say with a straight face that this is a, a meaningless offense when the guy who helped him do it did spend time in jail over it. I mean, it's this really weird thing. If you think about it, you know, Michael Cohen spent time in jail. That Alan Weisselberg guy, I guess it's he's basically doing time served or a few months. He's not doing, you know, he, the CFO of the Trump organization. The guys who helped him do stuff are all getting, are all doing time. But somehow, not only does Trump not get uh, convicted of anything, he doesn't even get indicted for anything. Now, the uh, the one thing that it may do, and this is another topic we're gonna we're gonna uh, discuss in this episode. Is it could help him secure the nomination? I think, uh, if only because it adds to the great difficulty of the situation, the challenge that that Ron DeSantis has in 
somehow attacking Trump while also being his biggest fan, sort of, or something. I don't, I don't know quite how that works. Uh, anyway, we're going to discuss all those things, uh, me and my co-host, Kate. Uh, before we do that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Making cold brew doesn't have to be complicated. You can do it without a French press, a grinder, or a scale. You don't even need a measuring spoon. A beanbag bundle from Grady's gives you exactly what you need to make perfect iced coffee. Just drop your beanbags bean in a pitcher, add water, and sleep on it. 12 hours later, you'll have 12 glasses of New Orleans-style cold brew ready to enjoy all week. For less than a dollar a glass, it's a no-brainer. The only decision you'll have to make is whether it's original, French vanilla, or decaf. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, what do we? We're in the we're in the indictment watch. What do we? (laughs) What do we know as of early afternoon on Wednesday? Well, we know that the jury meets Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and that they're not meeting today, Wednesday, which might mean something and might mean nothing because it's not that uncommon for them to not use every day that they meet or, you know, for there to be scheduling conflicts and whatnot. Um, But obviously, this is all just so supercharged ever since Trump, you know, sent out his call to arms um, for his acolytes. So as of now, the earliest that we would get an indictment is going to be Thursday afternoon. Um, And there are some indications that there might be one more witness for the jury to hear before it votes. So, you know, we're still kind of in flux. And then, of course, we still don't know for sure that he'll be indicted, right? We know by all accounts that the first kind of question mark of whether the prosecution will seek an indictment, that seems to be a pretty solid yes, that they are seeking an indictment. We don't know that the jury will indict him. That's still, you know, kind of up in the air. Um, and then you have all this like kind of secondary drama of Trump telling his associates that he wants to be perp walked, that he wants to kind of be like roughed up in front of the cameras and that if he gets shot, he gets shot. At least he'll be a martyr. Um, and then you have ever since January 6th, obviously, whenever there's any kind of stirring of, you know, Trumpy people are going to protest slash organize, it just takes on these magnified implications. Um, but what was funny about it is like over the weekend when we at TPM were just trying to kind of triangulate and see, you know, where do we have to put resources and what do we have to track? The thing that just kept coming to mind for me is like, okay, where are they going to go, right? Are are they going to form like a human chain around Mar-a-Lago? Are they going to be in New York? Are they going to be in DC? You know, it's just kind of unclear. And then um, my boyfriend sent me a screenshot of you know, one of their like telegram channels or or whatever, where the guy goes, uh, so yeah, here's the plan. We're going to meet in Mar-a-Lago or wherever he is, and we're not going to let him take him. And it's like, perfect plan. I No notes. You know, you those logistics are lock solid. Like you are good to go. And then of course, the other side of the equation is just, I don't think we're ever going to have a situation where there's any kind of stirring of like Trump protesty stuff that isn't met with an enormous law enforcement response because they're just they're not going to take the chance again. Right. So they're going to be armed to the hilt. And then you have the additional layer of a lot of Trumpy people every time this happens now saying, you know, this is an FBI sting operation. Like this is a false flag. They're just trying to get Trump people out there to round them up and put them in jail. So it's just this like nest of all these different pieces of the MAGA universe in here together. Yeah. I mean, you hit on the key point, which is that 
there, there's no geographical focus for this. You know, in theory, maybe, you know, the courthouse in, in New York or, you know, who, you know, where, I don't know if they take you, take people down to one police center or whatever that, whatever that, that uh, place is called or the tombs or whatever. Um, but first of all, it, it's not a, that's not really Trump country, mm-hmm. so to speak, despite, <laughs> despite the fact that that's where he's from. Um, I, I, I think that if you had a, a January 6th type thing in New York City, it might, it might get pretty weird. It's not a terribly pro-Trump city. Um, and, you know, to, to his guys from Ohio want to go into Manhattan and 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 do that. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, yeah, you go to Mar-a-Lago, you go, I don't know, you could just protest it kind of at the local courthouse in, in Idaho. I, you know, I don't know. You could, it, it, there's no geographical focus. And, and, and the thing... Um, the thing with January 6th is, of course, there was a specific thing they were trying to accomplish. A certain thing had to be done that day, and they thought that if they could stop that from happening, this would uh, allow more time for the stolen electors and all that kind of stuff. And there's there's just there's just nothing um, there's nothing analogous to it. And so, yeah, I don't I don't think. And, you know, and, and the other thing, too, is, is that um, everybody is in, in a modern American presidential election. Everybody is is pretty stirred up about the outcome of an election. It matters a lot to a lot of people. So it's not just about Trump in that case. You've got, you know, Joe Biden, the demonized Joe Biden and America will end and all that kind of stuff. But. Um, are people like he's he's getting indicted for a kind of a mid-level crime in in by the local prosecutor in in New York City? Are people really going to say like, "Hey, I'm giving it all for this. I, I can't let this happen"? Why? I mean, it's not it's not even like um, like when's the trial going to be? Like in in December or something like that. So it's it just doesn't. Um, it doesn't stir up the same stuff. And I think what we've at least seen, I mean, it's weird since we're kind of, he's put us in this kind of, you know, <laughs> bizarre holding pattern of, you know, we, we we thought it was going to come the last three days and maybe it'll come tomorrow and maybe not. Uh, but to the extent that there have been like pre-protests, they've been pretty feeble. You know, generally speaking, you know, reporters outnumber the Trump people by like, you know, 10 to one or something like that. I think there was like a crowd of like nine people in front of like Trump Tower. So it's just, it's kind of not there yet. Yeah. I mean, and you also have Trump, you know, he's trying to paint this situation as like the moment the indictment comes down, I will be, you know, snatched by armed police and I will be perp walked and I will be put in jail. And that's the last you'll hear of me. And obviously that is not what's going to happen, right? If he is indicted, you know, he, I, despite his like dreams of being perp walked, I would imagine, you know, like you said, Josh, that he, his team and the prosecutors will probably like figure out some arrangement. He'll surrender, right? He'll be arraigned. All of this will probably be like pretty closed off, you would think. Um, And then, you know, he'll leave and then there'll be a, a protracted litigation for kind of the foreseeable future. Meanwhile, 
We've got the other universe of investigations involving Trump kind of continuing apace. So, you know, also just the bureaucracy of this process kind of dampens its dramatic potential because there is just, you know, Trump going to jail as I think kind of unlikely as everyone thinks that is, even if in the in the wildest version of events that's going to happen, it's not going to happen for months, right? So you're he's kind of asking his followers to come out and put their bodies on the line to make sure he doesn't have to like go into the courtroom and, and be arraigned basically. Yes, yeah, stop, exactly. you know, don't allow me to be arraigned. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, and it's even even like even if you play this out, um I, and again, I don't know how uh how quickly the the court system in New York City works for this kind of case to the extent that there is this kind of case, right? Is it really is it going to run on the same schedule that like everyone else who's paid off a porn star they had sex with years before because they're running for president or whatever or whatever. But to the extent that you can say that there's uh, you know, similar kind of white collarish crimes, how soon do you get a trial date? Do you get one in the fall? Maybe? Okay. So 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 then there's a trial in the fall. Um you know, in 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 every other case, you have appeals. You know, you you have appeals. You're 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 certainly going to be uh, on bail on appeals. I don't know how long the appellate uh, process uh, takes, uh, and I I don't have a sense of what um, you can't really put anything past the Trump people because they'll come up with the most inane, you know, kind of everything under the sun. But one of the one of the like what is it they didn't i think i think they brought a challenge to uh tish james of kind of like it's just not fair that you would indict me and it's because you're an anti-trump zealot and no fair and i i think the judges just said well you know that we don't have a no fair doctrine like what are you even talking about right um but i think the relevant point is is that he's not president and so all that whole universe of executive privilege type stuff just just is is relevant to this and and the the um all of the all of the facts here it all happened before he was president so it's not even like in the Georgia case where you can say all right he's not president anymore so he can be indicted but can can the president of the United States during a presidential election, not reach out to make sure that everything is is being done properly in a state. You know, so he was he was president when he was doing this stuff. So there's all sorts of but this is this is separate in as much as he's not president now. He wasn't president when any of the relevant facts happened. So it's not clear to me what novel or Trumpian appeals he could come up with that turn in any way on presidential anything. But as you say, for the moment, we're just talking about a sort of a an administrative process where he just kind of puts in a plea. So there's not a lot to, you know, not a lot to protest about. Right. Um, and I think you are correct in kind of your opening of saying it's silly that people have been like, and Trump just won re-election. I mean, to some degree, by all accounts, the FBI raid was like more dramatic than this has been. <laughs> and this case, like you said, I mean, it's relatively small potatoes. So it's just, it, I just don't think it has kind of the firepower of what people are saying. And also, you know, a former president being indicted is going to, you know, every single outlet that writes it up is going to say, this is unprecedented. This is historic. Totally. 
as was Trump being impeached twice, right? I mean, when you're playing on kind of the Trump set of parameters, it's things are just graded on a different curve. Um, so yeah, this just seems to me like it's obviously, you know, big news, but in terms of having these kind of massive ripple effects many months before the election, it just seems to me to be a little bit overblown. Um, And also Trump has just made so much part of his political persona, the idea that he is under assault by the deep state, right? He is the institution's biggest fear. And in some ways, this almost just helps him position on that issue, which as we saw in 2020, was harder for him as an incumbent, right? It's it's a lot harder to rage against the establishment when you are in charge of the establishment. And here, I think he is kind of seeing his best path based on what we've seen so far as he's going back to his roots of being the besieged, uh, you know, outsider who's shaking things up and then kind of painting DeSantis as the, the rhino, the the character of the establishment, right? The he's kind of the the boring Mitt Romney and I am continued to be this like renegade and it is as it ever was. Uh, so in that way, it's almost, you know, I think the idea of like him being indicted immediate win is a little bit silly, but you you can see the way that this kind of does fit the narrative that he's trying to shape this time around. Well, I do think, and this is kind of gets us to our, our second topic, mm-hmm. DeSantis and everything that's happening on that front. I do think that it helps him significantly, I think, uh, get renominated. But that's largely because I think he was in a pretty good position to get renominated already. And it just, it, it, it um, draws the this the sort of the binary that DeSantis somehow has to overcome even more starkly than it was before. I mean, as we're seeing now, Ron DeSantis needs to make a case against President Trump while simultaneously not bumming out the, you know, 30% of I some people say I someone told me today it was it was it was 30% who are kind of absolute Trump people. I, I don't I don't think that's really I think it's more than that. But in any case, you you can't even if it's only 30%, you can't bum them out. And as we have seen that this supposed indictment, it has everybody in the GOP glomming themselves onto Donald Trump in spite of themselves. Mm-hmm. Even the, and, and you kind of see like some of them are trying to say, well, it's not about, it's not about Trump, but, but of course it's about Trump. You know, they're, they're all lining up defending him, uh, attacking the prosecutor. And it's just, it's just pretty hard in that when you, as you say, this is not, this is not a new narrative for Trump. It, it, it slides right into the narrative that he has really been pushing, not so much during the, not so much during the um, 2016 campaign, because it, it really grows out of the Russia stuff and the stuff in the very beginning of the administration, the deep state and all that kind of stuff. It slides right into that. They're coming after me. And that just, you know, makes very small the space that Ron DeSantis has to say, well, he's he's not really very good. We don't he's we don't want him to be president again. He has bad morals. He's a bad leader. In you know, in anything like that. Um, so I, I do think it kind of it makes what I think was already going to be a very difficult challenge for Ron DeSantis or anybody else who wants to run against Trump just 
much harder because you you already see all the Trump people are you know that he's that he's betraying Trump and it 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 just it just makes it very difficult. I don't think he can pull it off. Yeah, I agree. I've always been kind of you know, not very enthusiastic about DeSantis's chance. And it's because, you know, whether or not you have this looming indictment, like something is going to happen where people ask him about something Trump did or said that he needs to set himself apart from. And that is an impossible tight walk to to walk here, tightrope to walk in to say, I am better than Trump in XYZ way, but he's great. You know, like, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love the guy. I think he did a fantastic job as president. Yet here's why you should pick me. Like that that's a hard argument to make at the best of times. And the more we see of DeSantis, I think the more we see his lack of kind of verbal dexterity. And that is something that I think we've been waiting for for a long time because this is a guy who only takes interviews with friendly media. I mean, he is like clearly afraid of reporters and keeps them away. And now he's entering a stage where he's not going to be able to have that kind of control. He's going to have to answer questions about Trump. And so far, it's been this weird dance of like, you know, uh, the the porn star thing, that was weird. That wasn't great. But this prosecutor, you know, he's like George Soros' son or whatever, you know. So, and it just comes across as odd. And he's he's just, I don't think he's the guy who's going to be able to do it, which is already, I think, a job that I'm not sure anyone can actually do. But I just think he in particular is not the one who's going to be up to these kind of rhetorical games and the constant dancing it would take to stay in this lane. The thing I, I was writing about this this morning, and when I was writing about it, it, it kind of it unfold the 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 issues kind of unfolded for me a bit, and I and I at least got what I thought was at least for me a little more what seemed like a little more insight into it. Um, as as you're just saying, the, the one thing is, I don't know if anybody could do this for the just the basic reason that it's a it's a Trump loyalism party, and how do you attack the king while also loving the king, and that's just super hard and. Added to that is the fact that Ron DeSantis does not strike me as having much verbal dexterity, and you would need a lot of verbal dexterity to pull this off. What he's what he has shown himself pretty good at is um, on you know on pretty friendly territory with a tractable state legislature, kind of like let's think through all the things we Trump people like. We're going to crack down on gay people, you know, we'll call it groomers or, you know, trans stuff or, or whatever. We'll, we'll ban some books. We'll do, we'll do all this stuff and we're just going to kind of knock that stuff out of the park, right? And, and, and that gets people really excited and everything. But he's just not, he doesn't, he's awkward. He does not have a lot of verbal dexterity and you would need so much to pull this off. But there's another layer of it too. In the everybody's talking today about this interview that he did with Pierce Morgan, uh, in which he, you know, he said that you know the paying porn stars that's not in his wheelhouse. <laughs> well, okay, like wow, you know, keep it keep it friendly for the children, right? I mean, like okay, like not in your wheelhouse. And then he talked about George Washington. You know, George Washington always put the country ahead of himself. Like okay, because Trump didn't put the, okay, got it. Right. But it's so indirect and kind of like, you know, everything like that, like, like, uh, what was the other thing? Um, you know, truth is really important. Like, 
Right, because Trump, not it's it's all very indirect, and it's not just a it's not just that you've got to be, um, have a lot of verbal dexterity. You know, he talked about character a few times in the old days. Those were really fighting words between politicians at the presidential level. If you say, I have questions about his character, is his character good enough? You know, back in the 90s with Bill Clinton, those were, that was intense stuff, right? But it's not anymore. In the Trump GOP, like what? Like character, like you're talking about George Washington. Donald Trump has created a pro wrestling GOP. There's no subtlety. Subtlety is not allowed. Nuance is not allowed. I call you a groomer and I call you meatball Ron and all this <laughs> like totally over the top crazy stuff to knock you down a notch, but also show that I'm the big guy and I will just stomp you. And and in comparison to that, you've got DeSantis talking about George Washington and stuff. And like, again, that might cut it in the pre-Trump world, but it just makes him look like a softy. Like I can just imagine Trump saying, what? George Washington? Like what, Ron? Like, are, are you trying to say something, Ron? I mean, it's so easy just to mock him because like, what are you trying to say, Ron? You're talking about George Washington and now you're talking about wheelhouses. He sounds stupid. And again, it's because, it's because Trump remade the party around this different way of operating. And, you know, Trump is, <laughs> Trump is no genius, but he's savvy in his own way. I think he totally gets that to speak in the language of the current GOP, he needs to say Trump is old and a criminal and a liar, and he embarrassed the whole country, and we need to be done with him. But that's also going to destroy DeSantis. So he's just kind of walking him into this trap. And it's, <laughs> I, I just don't think the, the, the current stuff is not going to, is just not going to cut it. And I think that's, this has been clear since the kind of initial volleys in this direction were like, uh, you know, Trump's great, great president, but, you know, we're, it's time for a new generation to take over or like a new future, a new direction. And kind of on paper, Okay, fine. There, that's kind of your one sentence way to pay homage and then to also be like, but here's why you should pick me. I think the problem is as soon as that thesis statement has to get in any way specific or in any way respondent to what's happening in real time, it just becomes impossible, right? Because you just, you can't keep kind of lauding him um, and all this stuff he's doing and then immediately kind of pivoting back to your own case, because like you said, he's just he is the party and he is, you know, he is within everything they want to talk about, everything that happens. And he's on the stage and he's going to be keeping he's going to keep saying things that these people have to respond to. Um, and I think so far, they've all just looked silly, right? You've had like Nikki Haley do the kind of like, I'm the future thing, but then she's trying to wrangle with her past as being, you know, the kind of the one who took the Confederate flag down, right? Like she's trying to find a way to be both of those things. You have Mike Pence kind of really laughably trying to divorce himself from the man he served alongside while also somehow making the case that he is the face of the future of the Republican Party. You know, it's just it's silly and discordant. And this is why I think you and I have kind of been saying for a long time, like, 
it's Trump's nomination to lose, right? I mean, it's just, it's hard to see Elaine for anybody else. No, I, I think I think that's right. And um, I, I guess, I guess DeSantis' poll numbers have been sort of flagging a bit before mm-hmm. this kind of current round of stuff even started. But I think, I, I think the key thing there is, is that DeSantis's poll numbers were never mostly about DeSantis. They were just right. kind of like, you know, the Republicans who are, you know, uh, bound into Trump loyalism, you know, they're part of that sort of tribal thing, but all things being equal, kind of like, okay, like it's, 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 it's taken on a little too much water. Let's, let's, let's kind of move on. Um, in some ways, I, I think the smart ones are the ones holding back. And maybe if, I don't know, if Trump gotten a bunch of le- you know, enough legal trouble that somehow it was game changing, and then you could come in later and kind of say, oh man, I never would have run into Trump. But now that he's, he has dropped out, I guess I, I, I have to, my, my, my love of Trump means that I have to run and, 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 and whatever. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's what Ted Cruz is doing or I, you know, Tom Cotton or something like that. But I do think we're going to, it's at least going to be Ron DeSantis has his work cut out for him and it is going, we're going to see a lot of awkwardness um, because he's, Trump is like forcing him to be like a Jeb type figure. Yeah. You know, please clap. And this is a piece of it that I really wanted to talk about because I'm obsessed with it. But we're also now starting to get the kind of like Ron DeSantis is weird genre of stories. And if our listeners haven't had the pleasure, there's an anecdote that was going around kind of a few days ago, I think, um, in a Daily Beast story. But it was this section in this story about how Ron DeSantis like lacks a lot of the basic skills that most politicians at this level have. And he was talking about that when he eats, someone described it as like a starving wild animal, like food just sprays everywhere. And then that piece was kind of capped off with this anecdote that when they were on a plane, DeSantis like opened a pudding cup and stuck three of his fingers in to eat it, like shoveling it into his mouth with his dirty fingers. And like, (laughs) I am only kind of joking here that I just don't think you can be president when there are stories like that about you, because that is so evocative. You know, as soon as people hear that story, they are absolutely not going to forget it. It's impossible not to picture. It's gross and it's super weird. And I I can hear the counter of people being like, well, Trump is weird. And that's true. Trump is weird. But Trump is weird in like, I I kind of think it's one of the times that he's most charming is when he's being... um, a little like self-defeating about his weirdness or kind of being like, yeah, I'm aware of my quirks, but like this is, you know, it's kind of the the rich guy weirdness, right? Of like never wearing shoes or something. That's just like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, that's, that's him. Like he has yeah. too much money to count. He can't be distracted by these other things kind of thing. But like DeSantis is weird in an awkward, unpersonable way that I think is really going to matter and was so captured in that photo we talked about ages ago, but when uh, he and Biden were there after the hurricane or whatever, and Biden like had his arm around people and they were all yucking it up. And DeSantis is just like shoulders hunched in the foreground, talking to no one, just kind of like, I have to be here. Well, you know, there's what, what doesn't get talked about a lot in the, in the sort of the 
you know, big picture coverage of his incipient campaign is DeSantis was in the House for, I guess, four terms, you know, uh, three, four terms, maybe five terms, a few terms. I think it was three or four. Um, and, you know, he was a hardcore Freedom Caucus guy. But his reputation in the House was uh, people didn't like him. And, and, and not like he was so evil people didn't like him. He was just awkward and, and people didn't like him. And again, it's not the kind of like, oh, he would, he would, he, he roasted babies on a spit in his office. He was so bad. I couldn't, just not, not a, per, uh, not a people person. Right. Yeah, the, and that the matters. Ted Cruz dynamic, if yeah, you will. That, that, and, and, and what was it? There's, there's stories about, um, I, oh God, I'm good. I'm remembering the feel of the anecdotes, but they're just the way someone can kind of dig at you or neg you in a way that you're like, oh, like a third party sees it. And they're like, oh, like not like not that's I didn't want to see that kind of thing. And that those things matter a lot when you're when you're running for president, because for better or worse, and, and I think we. Republicans are often able to use this very well against Democrats, that the way the presidential office works in this country, in this society, that people want to feel like, okay, that's a solid guy. That's a solid woman. You know, kind of not like that person's weird. And, and, and does it matter if someone has kind of weird quirks and is antisocial? Eh, in some ways, no. But on the other hand, a lot of what the president does is communicate with the public. Um, you know, so I, I, I've always been a, as I think you were saying earlier, something of a DeSantis pessimist in the context of just in the, in the purely predictive sense of, mm -hmm. is, is this guy going to be the, the, the nominee? Yeah, I mean... And it really feels to me similar, like similar to Cruz or Holly or these people who have always fostered very obvious presidential ambitions. But like, there is just a limit on how like hated you can be and still become president, you know, like to some degree, our elections do have a personality contest component, you know, it's a popularity contest It kind of always has been. And so I think there's a way you can be weird that you can make it work for you. I mean, like, people would probably argue, you know, obviously John Fetterman had a lot of like smack in your face odd things about him, but he was able to kind of make that, you know, this is who I am. I'm authentic. And that reads as cool to people. Whereas like, if you're just like an awkward, uncomfortable person trying to fit yourself into the mold of like a personable, glad handing politician, I just don't think that traditionally comes across in a way that people like. Yeah, no. And, and I think, you know, Joe Biden is an example of this, that, that obviously um, Republicans and some Democrats tried to, you know, the creepiness, the kind of the creepy uncle kind of thing. But for both factual reasons and kind of just impression reasons, it that didn't end up flying. And I think the thing with Joe Biden is that whatever you think of him politically, that there's this general impression that he's kind of a in the good sense, kind of a sappy, you know, kind of le leads from his heart, kind of like, you know, if something bad happened to you, he'd be there to console you kind of thing. And so a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that can seem awkward, kind of like, you know, saying things that are that are 
come out wrong or stuff like that. I think one of the things that has been his strength is people kind of feel like, you know, okay, he's he's a little weird maybe sometimes, but he's a solid guy. He means well. And and that that and and when I say weird, I don't mean that how, you know, it it's uh you know, he has verbal stumbles, he has has gaffes, stuff like that. But what you saw in, you know, after the State of the Union, where he's like there chatting with everybody, right? And that comes off. And I think it comes off as sincere because I think it is sincere. Yeah. He's kind of a very traditional Paul. Uh, you know, that's kind of the, you know, the funnest part of the job for him. And it, it's funny if you think about it, think about this. How many times have you seen Ted Cruz in a clip from Fox News, tweeting something in a, in some debate context, man, nonstop, mm-hmm. all the time. He's everywhere. Now, <laughs> Ted Cruz is someone who kind of in every stage of his life, no one around him likes Ted Cruz. But at least with Ted Cruz, man, he's everywhere. I totally have a sense of of his vibe and what he's thinking at every any any given time because he's ubiquitous, right? And when I think about it, I I I can I can visualize various times recently where Ron DeSantis has been in some press conference mode, kind of I did this, I did that. But like, does he go on TV? Does he tweet? Does he is he present at all? And I mean, not at all. Now, just just today. He did this in this interview with Pierce Morgan, but that's like kind of the first time. And I and I, I do think that it's it's very hard for people who are just so appalled by Trump, just despise despise him, everything he's done, what he represents, et cetera. That certainly in 2016, the guy has a charm, and it works for a lot of people. That's not me saying I like the guy. It's just recognizing, I think, a fact. And if he didn't, he wouldn't have had a reality TV show for a dozen years or whatever it was. It's a it's a kind of a, a, a weird kind of charm. And it is often a predatory kind of charm. It's kind of like it's it's attacking people, but kind of like with a with a smile, like a wink at you. We know this person is, is this. And you know, there there's a I think a lot of non-sociopathic people think that Humor is not mean. When it's mean, it's not really funny. Well, we wish that were true, but it's not true. A lot of very cruel things people find funny or charming. And Trump has that. And and um, again, that is not saying anything positive about him. It's just recognizing how he was able to get to where he got. Even, even as you said, Kate, he does have kind of paradoxically a self-effacing part of himself. He kind mm-hmm. of, where he'll kind of go off, he has this thing where he'll go off script, you know, momentarily and sort of become, you know, become an outside critic of Trump and say how kind of Trump's weird and Trump lies a lot and Trump, you know, and, and all those things fit in. DeSantis doesn't have that. And, and um, I do think one of the things that, that Trump brought about and in some ways, it's not a totally bad thing, although he was a bad example of it. One of the ways that he did so well in 2016 is everyone else is running a traditional campaign where if something happens, your press office puts their heads together and we're going to put out a statement. Whereas Trump's just going on Twitter saying, no way, that's, that's crazy. No, sorry. 
And Trump is just operating way faster than anybody else. And we see this to some extent in other countries that have these kind of authoritarian leader types, um, but not always people who are have that kind of politics. I think there's something about the current moment where if people can pull it off, there is an advantage to a politician who can just kind of ditch the press office and say, I'm going to wing this on my own. And I'll say some totally crazy things, but like, it's actually me. And um, I do think Trump kind of broke that open in a way that it's not going to, it's not going to fully unopen, right? It's not going to, it's not going to fully close up, even though a lot of people can't quite pull it off the way that, that, that Trump does. And the crux of that is just so far, DeSantis has been able to control his exposure, you know, whether that be not going on TV much or not talking to reporters who don't work for like, you know, Chinese propaganda outlets or like just kind of holding bill signings where he can talk and doesn't take questions. Like to some degree, you can control that when you're governor of a state and the local reporters are going to complain and everything, but that's part of DeSantis's brand. So he doesn't care, but you just, you simply cannot mount a mainstream presidential bid and exact that amount of control over your surroundings. Even in our current time, when we've talked about how debates are kind of waning and candidates are, especially post-COVID, really like the idea that they can avoid certain settings that are uh, tend to be kind of harder. But still, even with the kind of like reduced exposure, it's a lot of exposure. And DeSantis is going to have to think on his feet and respond on his feet. And so far, we just really haven't seen any ability to do that. I do wonder because it's not, it's not like Florida is, you know, Arkansas or South Dakota. And I, and, and, what I what I mean by that is, you know, very low population states with with a number of fairly small news outlets where they don't have the kind of the heft to, you know, uh, uh, you know, go toe to toe with a politician. Florida's a big state. You've got the Miami Herald. You've got a number of of still pretty strong regional papers and stuff like that. And a lot of them are doing all sorts of great reporting. And I, I, some of it is I, I I wonder that it's really electronic media that makes national press different. I think I think I'm not I'm not totally sure about that. But but again, you've 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 got the Tampa Times. You've got the you've got the Miami Herald. It's not like you don't have a lot of solid journalists there that are not kowtowing to Ron DeSantis. So how is he able to to do that? Some of it, I think, again, is that electronic media doesn't have quite the same heft at, at the state at the state level. But another thing that that he doesn't have is that, you know, Trump has been able to mostly not go on any of the non-Fox networks. And I guess yep. now either he's boycotting Fox or Fox is boycotting him, but he's got all those other channels. But all those other channels are like wildly pro-Trump. So they're not gonna they're not gonna be where DeSantis is going to be able to go and get like a, you know, get like a generous hearing, at least until he, you know, dispatches Trump. So Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so for the very end of our show, we're going to pivot to something completely different than this, which is Michigan is poised to repeal its right to work law. Um, The bills that pass through both chambers and basically they just have to reconcile the two versions. And then Gretchen Whitmer has signaled that she will sign it. Um, Our listeners will remember Michigan has a Democratic trifecta for the first time in decades. And this is kind of part of a flurry of 
bills that have come out of this state house about, you know, and there's really been no sense of like being scared of their own shadow that I think Democrats sometimes have. You know, you can recall the Democratic trifecta in Virginia in like 20 and 21. And it was just, I mean, they definitely passed some stuff, but there was a sense of trepidation of kind of like a pro business slant to the state then. And they didn't even try to repeal the right to work law then. Um, And basically what right to work laws do is they let uh, non-union members and unionized workplaces not have to pay union dues while the unions are legally obligated to cover all of the members, whether they're paying or not. So, you know, the non-member doesn't have to pay a union due. The union has to represent the non-member in a grievance with management kind of thing. So basically, this has created, you know, a free rider situation where unions don't have the resources um, and the organization power among the workers to kind of be as strong as they used to be. And the, the broad arc of these is this came from the 40s, the right to work thing. It was basically uh, a response to kind of the the New Deal wave and the really successful unions that um, were operating at the time. And then you had Republicans aided by Southern Democrats who had kind of their own motives, their own segregationist flavored uh, motives. And they passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which opened the door to these laws. There was a flurry of them at the time um, in like the late 40s, early 50s. And then, but It mostly swept the former Confederate states where union power was low to begin with, um, kind of encroached into the Sun Belt. And then you had a right to law, right to work law passed in the late 50s in Indiana, which was a huge deal because Indiana was an actual union stronghold at the time. That gets repealed about 10 years later. And then we're in this long period of stasis where like every time there was a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, they would try various labor reforms, including attempts to repeal the work right to work laws in particular. And they never worked. Almost every time came up against the Senate filibuster, which would be, you know, Republicans plus Southern Democrats and then Republicans plus kind of like pro-business Democrats kind of thing. Um, and then in, ten, in the early 2010s, you know, our listeners will remember two years after Obama's historic win, right? We have the midterm shellacking. We have the first time that like kind of Koch brother backed right wing of the party is really homing in on state legislatures as a place to kind of retake power. And then these right to work laws passed all over the place, just a huge flurry of them. And this now is the first time that one of those states is repealing its law since Indiana repealed its law in 1965. So it's a pretty big deal, even if kind of by the numbers, you know, only 15% of uh, salaried workers in salaried and wage earners in Michigan are unionized. And in some ways, in some right-to-work states, unions have kind of successfully been able to sell the idea that you should be paying for the union better than others. But there's no question that studies have been done showing that in right-to-work states, workers make less money than in non-right-to-work states. Unions are weakened. And it has a very direct result on democratic politics, which is that there is a demonstrated uh, per- vote percentage loss for Democratic presidents, senator- senators, House candidates, governors, and state legislators in right-to-work states. There's lower turnout. There's lower contribution from labor organizations. And it reduces the chance that working class 
people get elected to office, right? Which just kind of contributes to the rightward march of, of the states that have these laws. So basically, all that being said, it's a pretty big deal. Also, just kind of in symbolic terms, because Michigan is the prototypical, you know, union town, and it's kind of getting back to its roots. And I think it also reflects a shift within the Democratic Party at large to kind of shed some of the decades of complacency about, you know, strengthening unions and realizing that unions are kind of a huge political force for them. Like Biden talks about unions way more than any other Democratic president of my lifetime. You know, Warren and Sanders obviously really fronted labor reforms in their campaigns. We had the PRO Act, which in classic form, did not pass the Senate because of the filibuster. But it does, it feels to me like there's been a change. What do you think? I think that's right. And I guess, I mean, I think there's two parts of it. One is that democratic politics about unions has changed significantly in the way you've described. But I think what resonates even more with, to me, is the nature of democratic politics at the state level and really at the federal level has changed in a way that transcends labor issues. You know, the other thing, I know you know this, but the other thing that that uh, they did in Michigan was, I mean, it, it happened because of the constitutional amendment, but basically, we're going to have full abortion rights in this state. And I think, you know, we, we have had a history that really, that even goes, you know, that predates the uh, Koch brothers era that... Um, uh, Republicans have all these little hobby horse issues that they, you know, organize around. They get people, they get uh, uh, people running for state legislature to sign commitments about. There's this, I forget what it's called. There is a law that uh, Grover Norquist has worked very hard over the last couple decades to get states to pass around the country. I think I'm remembering this right. I think it's basically that you create a setup where you need a majority to cut taxes, but like a super majority to raise taxes. Hmm. So it puts in this thing that kind of creates a downward ratchet to kind of starve state governments of uh, revenue. It has a, a cute, um, uh, you know, acronym that it goes by and they get these things passed. And there certainly has been a sense in democratic politics that you know, we're going to come in and we're going to govern well and we're going to, you know, we believe in government and we're going to put, you know, able people in charge and let, you know, let, let's get everything working okay before you ta- start talking about a wish list of, of all the different laws you want to pass. And, you know, we have, we have a tight majority, so not everybody's going to want to pass everything, the sort of the base of the party, all, all that kind of stuff. And what you have seen coming out of the Trump period, coming out of the changes within the Democratic Party, uh, coming out of so many things coming together, this realization Democrats have that they need to say, if you elect us, there's going to be like five concrete things that are going to happen, and they are going to change your lived experience right away. Now, obviously, to be able to do those things in the current era, you need a trifecta. You need you need to control, you know, uh, control the legislature and the executive. In some cases, you need to control the ju- judiciary too. But this is we certainly saw this in uh, in Michigan, where uh, the state legislature has been under control of Republicans for a long time. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer and 
you know, party under her leadership saying, we need the whole thing and we're going to do these things. These things will change. We're not going to, we're not going to kind of put them to the back, you know, back burner, like, oh, after we've got everything, all that kind of stuff, that's not going to happen anymore. This has not been able to happen at the federal level because of the filibuster, uh, because all of the reasons why it's hard for the Democrats to get big majorities in the Senate, the fact that you still have this kind of residual uh, small C conservatism among a handful of Democrats about the filibuster, but it's just a, it, it's just a, it's just a different way of operating, and it's again we're seeing it on on choice, we're seeing it on right to work. There are a number of other sort of issues in this that that are comparable in the sense that they are kind of cardinal issues that is that matter to generate that matter to Democrats in general, but are existentially important to big factions among Democrats. And so I think that's a that's a big thing. So there's a labor part of it, and there's there's a a broader political part of it, and and really that's that that is what is so that is what is so destructive about the federal filibuster. You know, a lot of Democrats who are again reluctant to get rid of those impediments say, well, look, if we get rid of it, then Republicans are going to get a trifecta, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. But the real problem is that. What we have seen at the federal level, which is where most people participate in politics, where their mind kind of focuses, most people aren't, don't have a sense of what's happening in their state. You have you have you have severed the bands between political action and and results. So people say, "Oh, we did this thing, we got all the stuff, and what what happened? Why why isn't the law that we were going to pass? It's not passing." And you can kind of say, "Well, there's this weird thing called the filibuster," but that doesn't really cut it with people. And so people get demoralized about politics in general. And that's actually, that's worse for Democrats than it is for Republicans. Because Republicans do better with with a demoralized electorate than than Democrats do. And and so I think what um, what they're going to be able to say in Michigan and in other states where we're seeing somewhat, you know, comparable things happening is sort of like, okay, look, you elected us. And it was hard, and and we made these big changes. And if the other guys come in, they'll probably they'll pass an abortion ban, or they'll go back to you know. So that that gets people um, engaged. So that's it, it's good in a way that transcends just it's good for Democrats. They passed a law that like you know Democrats care about. Yeah, I definitely think that's true, and I think it does tie into the changing. Um, like perception by Democrats of unions and workers in particular because. For so long, they've been just kind of considered this like junior partner to Democrats, like hopeful for get out the vote. But, you know, when it comes time to pass laws, the labor reforms are not usually the first thing on the docket. Right. But now, especially as I think Democrats are starting to get their sea legs in terms of like Republicans are the party of kind of the rich and companies and that's what they care about. And and we're the party of the normal people. Like there's just been a real attempt, especially under Biden to reclaim that narrative where Republicans have kind of claimed that they're the party of the working class baselessly, but successfully for so long. And I think this all ties into the Biden administration's like talking about Medicare and social security every single day, you know, talking about uh, like, union stuff and wage stuff and all this kind of 
thing that they're re- they really are going hard at this idea of like we are the party of the the working class and the families and they are trying to get tax breaks for corporations and raise taxes which you know in addition to being i think politically savvy happens to be true so it works on both levels and i do think this is kind of a outgrowth of that new positioning that new attitude coupled totally with what you're talking about of the aggression, the newfound aggression, the the l- less of the kind of fear of like, ah, Republicans are going to make fun of us if we do that. And a little bit more of the, at least in Michigan, like we won and we're going to act like we won. Yeah. And, and, and when you do win, you should act like you won. Both sides should. And, and, you know, I kind of the idea that, oh, Republicans are going to do these terrible things. Well, that's not great, but you run again in two years. You know, kind of, they did these terrible things. Let's 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 undo it. And the thing about the thing about the sort of the increasing visibility of labor politics, there's there's a narrative out there that basically says that uh, in the '60s and '70s, the Democratic Party sort of uh, downgraded labor. Let's say in in the, in the sort of the political hierarchy within the Democratic Party. And um, Reagan fired the air traffic controllers and kind of, you know, downhill from there for labor. That's not totally true. And I think it's really important for people to understand that there's a a more complex story there, that things were already happening within the labor movement um, and within the manufacturing community that was already starting to weaken organized labor. And so there's a push and a pull. It's not that Democrats decided to sort of like abandon labor so labor started falling apart. Part of it was that labor started falling apart and Democrats started needing to kind of grab other pieces of support other places. It was two things happening at once that both reinforced each other. And and look, there's big debates about this and I'm sure tons of people are going to write in and you should write in making your case about it. But it is... It, it's it's a complex political economic uh, equation. And I think one big question is, you know, we see all the time now news about labor organizing it, in various newer sectors of the economy. You see it, you know, Amazon, see it, Starbucks, all these. And, and really the big question is, um, is that over time going to reverse what has been basically a downward slope of unionization in the private sector economy going back like half a century now. And because, you know, one or two high profile victories doesn't doesn't mean that much statistically. Um, but, you know, that is something to that is something to keep an eye on. And that dynamic that I talked about a moment ago, where it being both things happening at the same time, it can be that way on the other side of the equation, too, that you have more organizing victories for a variety of different reasons for things going on in the society. Um, you use that greater strength to get people elected, and then they change laws that allow you to do more successful organizing. Um, so that's a that is that that I think is a big question about our politics and political economy right now. Is you know are are these high profile successes that we have seen a lot of? in you know in recent in the last half dozen years are those going to start changing 
changing the direction of of unionization of the private sector economy in in this country. I think that's still an open question, although it certainly looks a lot better now than it did up until again half a dozen years ago when the only ongoing story was the decline of union jobs which and again just for if you're not someone who um who has followed the history of this stuff it has almost never been union unionized workers deciding to deunionize it's that the sectors of the economy that were heavily unionized disappeared or they became much, much smaller because of a mix of foreign competition and, autom- and, and automation. So, you know, the, like the steel industry, the auto industry, all these kind of industries where it's, it's, it's not a matter of organized labor failing. It's a matter of that the, organ- that the most organized sectors of the economy either disappeared or changed and organized labor was much less effective unionizing the new sectors of the economy that started employing people. So it's, it's, it's a complex thing, but you know, I, I can't, I, I it, it's hard to describe how um, it was decades when you didn't have stories about, Oh, this, this, this non-unionized sector of the economy, there's these kind of upstart unions and they're, and they're winning, you know, they're winning elections and stuff like that. Uh, that's, 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 that's new. I and mean, we've seen it in our own industry. Right. I mean, uh, probably a decade ago, um, basically none of the none of the new media was was unionized. I, I mean, almost categorically, you can say that none. And then uh, over a period of about five years, um, digital media became oh, not fully unionized, maybe, but like pretty close. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so but, you know. Digital media, as much as we love it, is not a, is not a huge you know is not a huge <laughs> sector of the economy. But still, it, it's being you know we're seeing in other uh, you know kind of service industry parts of the economy. So you know we'll see what happens over the coming years. Yeah, I think it remains to be seen if this will affect the laws because right now the laws are so slanted against unions. It's hard to make a union. Um, you know, we're seeing this with like the kind of big moves against the corporate titans like uh, Starbucks and Amazon, right? That you can have these amazing, awe-inspiring, like kind of incredible uh, balloting efforts, you know, to get people to vote, uh, to make the union. And you have all these cool stories about people being brave and, uh, you know, just very kind of ordinary people saying like, you know, enough of this. We, We deserve to be treated better. And then the problem is it's just so hard to win what is right now such a lopsided battle, especially in, you know, places like Starbucks where there's huge turnover and it's hard to maintain this. And pretty much the only punishment for Starbucks deciding not to negotiate in good faith is the Labor Relations Board sending a stern letter telling them to negotiate in good faith. I mean, it's just such a David and Goliath setup right now, but it's hard for me to see it being anything but good, that there are these disparate big victories that people are getting excited about them, that the idea of kind of retaking worker power is really ascendant in the Democratic Party, at least. That all at least seems to be pushing in the right direction to me. Well, what you, what you see, too, is is public opinion more generally has been fairly indicative that the j- just the total public 
you know, unions, good, bad, has shifted upward a lot in, Hugely. in, in, in recent years. And that, that is pretty, that's pretty indicative. I, I, as much as, you know, as much as uh, labor activists don't like to hear it, although I think people who really kind of live this stuff know the reality of it, in the 70s and 80s, there was, and into the 90s, there was a lot of public opinion of labor, you know, self-interested just for the workers in one industry, uh, slowing things down, preventing us from being competitive, all of all of these kind of negative impressions or, you know, they're corrupt or all of the all of the things had much more traction um, in just just general public opinion. And, and that has that has uh, that's changed a lot. And again, I mean, I, I'm my only hesitation is is that the the downward progression of of the percentage of the private sector, and when I keep saying private sector, there's a lot of unionization of the public sector, and and there there are certainly more of the public sector that can be unionized, but it, it, the private sector is where the where the where the real problem is. Um, I I have certainly I I grew used to for following this for many years, you kind of hear about this one thing, oh, that's a big victory. And also the the percentage went down 2% over the last two years, you know, kind of like just down, 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 down. And, um, you know, kind of stuff like uh, Starbucks, they can, it, it's a tough thing because, you know, uh, one location can like have this kind of Herculean effort. And then Starbucks just says, oh, you know what? It turns out we decided we're going to close that location just because it wasn't working out. And, you know, there'll be some sort of like, uh, there'll be some sort of grievance filed with the NLRB and blah, 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 blah. And maybe there'll be a fine. But obviously the value to Starbucks of just like zapping that one unionized location is so huge. They're like, whatever, like say there's a fine, who cares? It's worth it. Right. So it's, 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 it's tough. And I guess there's also, um, people who know the details of this uh, better than I do. It's, it's, it's a, there's a whole complex thing, but one of the, the way that uh, Starbucks isn't a franchise system in the way that like McDonald's is, but still they have independent locations and the way that the labor law works is when you organize, you're just organizing your shop. It's not that like nationwide they can do it. And, and that's, that's pretty tough because again, Starbucks locations open and close all the time. And I, I don't think, um, I don't know exactly what the case law and administrative law about this is, but I think it is, at least under anything like current law, the NLRB is pretty resistant to saying, you know what, you better open that store again, because we don't think that was legit. Like that's, you can fight over it, but it's, it is, it's tough terrain for, uh, for, you know, for, for, for people who, um, for people who do this, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, and this gives you a sense of maybe how things have changed. I was, I think this was in the kind of maybe sometime between 2004 and 2008. I, I can't remember exactly, but in that ballpark I went to, and I know we're running a little long here, but this just occurred to me, it kind of gives you a sense. Um, I was at a, a sort of a house party, but that was basically about Andy Stern, who was the head of the SEIO, SEIU 
at the time and a big, big figure at the time in organized labor. So maybe the, the biggest figure, the kind of the most innovative union and all this kind of stuff. And this was very much kind of, uh, you know, one of these kind of, you know, uh, organized labor flat on its back. And I remember him kind of discussing like, you know, maybe maybe something else is required besides unions to do this. Maybe unions are just outmoded and we need some other framework. And he he mentioned, he mentioned Starbucks. And he said, you know, Starbucks has pretty good benefits. And, you know, maybe maybe that's a model. Maybe they don't need a union. And again, this is like 15 years ago or something like this. I'm not saying I, I, I remember it word for word, but it was a, a very chastened kind of view of the terrain from the man who was kind of like the head of the labor movement at the time. He wasn't head of the AFLCA. You, you know, there's that whole like they broke off and the Unite Here stuff and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and people, I think a lot of people in the labor movement were pretty not impressed by what Andy Stern has. I mean, he's gone on a lot of corporate boards and stuff like that. But it shows you that it is a very different world now compared to 15 years ago. If at the time, kind of the head of organized labor is kind of saying maybe maybe Starbucks just shouldn't have a union and maybe that can be awesome and maybe whatever, right? I mean, yeah. you're not hearing that now, so. Anyway, yeah. Times I mean, change. ultimately, we are, I think, back where we always start on this show, which is nuke the filibuster, baby. <laughs> you know, and and because and 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 the and the thing is, because when Republicans get a trifecta, they should be able to pass their stuff. That's 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 that is that's democracy, um, and th- that's when politics matters. When your vote has consequences. I mean, I'll tell you right now, if they didn't nuke the filibuster when they got a trifecta, it would not be a gesture of, you know, friendship to the Democrats who didn't nuke it in the years before. So if we could like drop that talking point because it's ridiculous. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, let me remind you that the uh, Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And I guess that's it for us this week. All right. See you next week. All right. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 